Amen. Awesome. So we are in Acts chapter 23. Go ahead and open up there. Technically, we're starting the last verse of chapter 22 and going all the way through to the end of chapter 23. 23 verse 35. That's where we're going to be today. Now, we've been in the book of Acts since January of 2021. It's a long time. We've taken some breaks in the middle. We did uh, Esther a little bit ago. We did a Christmas Advent series. We did a series on our mission statement in January of 2022. But for 43 weeks, we've been in the book of Acts. That's a long time. But we only have four weeks left. We're right here at the end. Don't sound so excited. (laughs) Uh, We're we're right here at the end. So it's been sweet to go through this book. And honestly, for me, uh, this happens to me all the time. But every time I open the Word of God, I'm just surprised at how much good uh, and, and beauty there is in every passage we turn to. And this passage is no exception. But moving on from here, starting this summer, when we finish this series on the book of Acts, we're going to be moving on into a series that I'm calling the Songs of the King. The Songs of the King. And it's Psalms written by King David. And in this series, what we're going to be doing is not only looking at these psalms written by King David, but we're also going to be connecting them to the passages of 1 and 2 Samuel to see the context of where they were set. Because if we can understand where these psalms fit into the life of King David, it's actually going to help us know how these psalms fit into our life in our circumstances. And I'm always just happy for any excuse to be in the psalms. So that's where we're going this summer, just for a short time before the new school year starts. But today, Acts chapter 23. So go ahead and have your Bibles open there. Now, I really uh, like a good checklist. Um, I like checklists because it really, feels really good to cross something off a, cre- a checklist. I also like checklists because checklists allow you to give yourself clear, manageable steps that you can do in order to accomplish bigger tasks, bigger jobs. So growing up, I was in the Boy Scouts. Um, that was a big part of my growing up years. And what is the Boy Scouts if not a series of checklists? You do this and this and this, and we'll give you a badge. Uh, get this badge and this badge and this badge, and we'll give you a, a rank advancement. Go through this rank and this rank and this rank, and we'll give you uh, the Eagle Scout Award. Boy Scouts is just a series of, of checklists. And it's the same with education. You go to your first class of of every year, and they give you the syllabus, and in the syllabus, there's a list that says, if you do this and this and this, you're going to get a good grade on this assignment. You do this assignment, this assignment, this assignment, we're going to give you the credits for this class. You do this class, and this class, and this class, and this class, we're going to give you a degree. It's a very clear step-by-step plan, a step-by-step process that you have to do if you're going to get that degree. So I really like a good checklist. It really helps break things down into manageable bits. So much so that recently I I made a a checklist of everything that I needed to do to get certain tasks done around here, uh, uh, church-related things. So for instance, I'm trying to finish um, a certain step in the ordination process with the EFCA. I'm trying to prepare for the doctrine and devotion class that we're doing this summer as a church. Um, A couple other things as well. Uh, But here's the issue with checklists. It's really easy to make those lists, (laughs) really hard to keep those lists. I got one week into that checklist, and I already fell behind (laughs) with it. They're easy to write. They're hard to follow through with. Because we can make plans all we want. But that doesn't mean that our plans are going to go to plan. We can make plans all we want, but that doesn't mean that we're going to be able to follow through with them. So it might be because of disorganization that our plans fall through. 
it might be a happy change of plan. We might have plans that don't go through because a better option (laughs) comes up, a better opportunity arises. Or sometimes plans change for painful reasons. Sickness, death, loss of a job, uh, the the crash of a stock market, a flat tire. (laughs) Plans change for all kinds of reasons. But the happy and the unhappy happenstances of our life come down to this truth that's best articulated by King Solomon in Proverbs chapter 16. He says this, that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Does that make sense? That we can make plans all we want, but that doesn't mean that our plans are going to go to plan, at least not according to our plan. Because God's plans are what will ultimately come to pass. And this is what Paul is facing in this passage. We actually found a couple weeks ago, Acts chapter 19, that Paul had a clearly laid out plan. We read this. Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. That was Paul's plan, to bounce straight through Jerusalem and go straight on to Rome. But as we know, last week that plan was interrupted. He was put in chains and held there in the barracks in Jerusalem. And that's where we are. Paul's plan doesn't go according to plan, at least not his plan. But the Lord's plan will be carried out. The Lord has a plan of his own for Paul and for us. So let me pause and pray just briefly one more time before we dive in and start rolling with this passage today. Heavenly Father, God, we know that your word is true. It's living and active. Whatever it says, whatever it teaches, we want to know, we want to be shaped by. So Lord, do your work. Open our eyes to see it. Soften our hearts to receive it. Change us according to your plan today and help us surrender to that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Paul is in Jerusalem. To bring you it up, to, up to speed a little bit, there was a mob. He was rescued by this soldier, uh, this guy named the Tribune. We'll later learn his name is Claudius Lysias. It's a great Roman name. And he rescues Paul, but he doesn't exactly know who Paul is. According to him, all that he knows is that he's a Roman citizen, and apparently he's not this Egyptian rebel that led a group of assassins into the wilderness. That's not a lot to go by. But... What he does know also is that he needs to figure out who this guy is if he's going to handle things properly, if he's going to understand why the crowds are all riled up. And so he has actually a really good idea. He thinks that he is going to bring Paul and put him before the leaders of the Jewish people. And that's what we see here in verse 30. Let's put that up here. What's really going on here? But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, that's Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. We we can see the rationale. Hey, I don't understand what's going on, but the Jews seem pretty upset with this guy. So let's ask the Jews. (laughs) Let's just put this guy in front of the Jewish high council, this group we call the Sanhedrin, And let them figure out whether or not he's guilty of some legitimate crime or not. It's a pretty smart move. For Paul, it's a chance for him to defend himself. So starting right here in verse 1, we see that's exactly what he does. So join me back in verse 1 of chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, 
Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law? You order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, if you shall not speak evil of a, sorry, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Essentially, he stands up in front of this council and he says, not guilty. Not guilty of any charges. I have nothing to confess here. Not saying that he's a perfect person. He's saying he hasn't broken any laws that are legitimate to have him be beaten and tried in this way before front of the Sanhedrin. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. And that's true. There is no good charge to be brought against Paul, and they know it. But think about the response here. If you actually think about what this high priest Ananias is doing here, what he does is he commits the crime that even the Roman tribune was unwilling to commit. Claudius Lysias, he was unwilling to beat a Roman citizen, an innocent Roman citizen, but the high priest of Israel seemed to have no problem with it. I mean, check out that hypocrisy. The readers, we as the readers, we should see that and be like, wait a second, this, this is ironic. We shouldn't miss that irony. And not only is the Roman soldier keeping the law while the high priest isn't, there's another irony here that Paul points out, that there's an innocent man on the dock with a guilty man behind the bench. That's ironic. We should see that. What it does for us is it emphasizes Paul's innocence. <laughs> he has done nothing deserving of death, nothing deserving of trial even. Paul does then what Jesus does to the leaders of Israel. Paul does actually what all the Old Testament prophets do. Whenever the people of Israel, rather the leaders of Israel, are in sin, he calls them out. You're going to strike me? No. <laughs> God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> we should bring back that insult. Um, the, the, the idea behind the insult is, hey, you look all nice and shiny and squeaky and clean and white and like everything's perfect, but just under the surface, you are broken, you are cracked, you are untrue. He's calling him a hypocrite. Similar to actually what Jesus says to the Pharisees back when he's doing his ministry, and he calls him whitewashed tombs, looking good on the outside, but dead on the inside. So what he's doing, he's calling them hypocrites. <laughs> not a great start to the trial. Um, you know, if he's wanting to get off the hook, this is not looking like it's going in the right direction. And so Paul knows that if he wants a fair trial, he has to figure out another tack. After all, this is the same men, the Sanhedrin, that sentenced Jesus to death, the perfectly innocent man. And so in verse 6, he changes tack. This is what he does. Join me back in verse 6 through 10. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. 
We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? It's actually not so far off from what actually happened, right? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, our old friend Claudius Lysias, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, it's pretty heated, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. All right. So about to be the victim of an unjust and broken judicial system, what, is it, what happens? Paul uses the fault lines in the assembly to his advantage. He says, hey, this is a pretty diverse group of people, some from the Pharisees, some from the Sadducees, and he's going to play that. He's going to use that to spin the whole conversation off in a whole new direction. The Pharisees, as it says here, they believe in the supernatural. Well, the Sadducees, they don't believe in that superstitious nonsense. They're, they're secular. Now, the Pharisees, I mean, they get a bad rap, and rightly they, they should in some ways. At the same time, for you and I, if, if you believe in a real God who really works in the real world, then you, like me, are, are more like a Pharisee than a Sadducee. And Paul is more like a Pharisee. <laughs> Than the Sadducee, not only because of his convictions, but also because his history. It seems like his dad was a Pharisee. He was trained up as a Pharisee. And so he takes his side. He plays his cards. He shows them. He puts them on the table, essentially dividing the group in half, spinning everything off in a whole new direction. Paul is being as shrewd as a snake here, even though he's being as, he is as innocent as a dove. He's taking Jesus's advice seriously from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. And so with this, the conflict increases until Claudius Lysias, our old friend, has to save him again. Isn't the Bible a riot? <laughs> this is kind of fun stuff we see in the Bible. But it's not just fun. There's a purpose behind it. And we look at this, and this is, there's another close call at death. And despite everything that's gone against Paul this whole time, like uh, riot after riot after riot, he actually still has one thing that's going for him. And it's the same thing that's going for the old man in Monty Python. He's not dead yet. He still has some breath in his lungs. He still can have a pen in his hand. Even though it seems like he's in a really tough place, it still seems like he's able to do the ministry that God has called him to do. And so that night, while in chains, Jesus comes to Paul. He showed up to him on the road. He shows up to him again here in chains. And this, this is what Jesus says. Let's put it up here on the screen. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Remember, that was Paul's plan. Acts 19, he planned to go to Jerusalem, to Rome after passing through Jerusalem. What a grace it is when God's plan for us aligns with our plans. Doesn't always go that way. But it seems here that Paul's desire, the deep desire of his heart is to land in Rome. And that's exactly what Paul, God pom promises to him here. What an encouragement. I mean, in a place where hope would, could seem pretty lost for Paul, for Jesus to show up and say, hey, brother, don't worry. We're going to Rome. The road doesn't end here. 
Rome is the end goal. But the problem is, that doesn't mean that this path is going to be without resistance. He's going to Rome, that much is for sure. But with that in mind, can I read the rest of this passage to you? Because the resistance to his mission is still severe. Let me read all the way to the end of this passage, all the way through verse 35. And then we'll turn around and we'll pick it, pick it apart. So here we go, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves with an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, Claudius Lysias, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Okay, 40-plus conspirators and the Sanhedrin all in this together. This is a conspiracy. Let's keep going. Now the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune, Claudius Lysus, he, he took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves with an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. It's in your hands. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. That's 470 soldiers to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Here's the letter. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. S a somewhat generous retelling of what happened, painting himself in a pretty good light. That's okay, we'll let it slide. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. He's innocent. And when, I was when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you that they, what they have against him. Okay. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, about halfway to Caesarea. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what uh, province he was from, checking that he had jurisdiction. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. 
and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So Paul was rescued from the Sanhedrin. That night, Jesus shows up to him, encourages him. Paul, don't worry, your plans align with my plans. We're going to Rome. And the next morning, the Jews plot to ambush and kill him. And even though he's rescued again and brought safely to Caesarea, a town on the coast about 50 miles away, he's still 1,300 miles from Rome. So he's safe, but now he still has quite a way to go, (laughs) to go to the place where God told him he was going to go. And get this, over the next few chapters, what we're going to see is that Paul is going to be in chains in Caesarea for two years. Wait a second. He's, He's there. God comes to him. Hey, don't worry. We're going to Rome. Your plan is the same as my plan. We're going to go to Rome and you're going to be able to teach the gospel, tell the story about me safely there. But now we put ourselves in Paul's shoes. And for the better part of 720 nights, Paul is laying in his bed thinking, wait a second, weren't we going to Rome? Wasn't that the way that this was going? Jesus, didn't you tell me that was the plan? Didn't you make that absolutely abundantly clear to me? Did I misremember? Was that a dream? Was that wishful thinking? God, I know it's impossible for you to lie. But the way that you're doing things, it doesn't make any sense. Two years in prison in Caesarea, wondering, wait a second, I thought we had a plan here. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you think you know what the best way forward is, (laughs) and it's just not going the way you planned. You might even think you know what God's calling you to. It's just not going the way you planned. That if God asked you, how should we take care of this situation, you would come up with a different plan than he's coming up with. Now, we have to say just a quick disclaimer. Does God make promises? Well, maybe not in the same way that we see him make promises in this passage today, showing up to us saying uh, with absolute certainty, this is what's going to happen to you in your life. We should really be careful to claim a promise from God that we cannot find in this book. We need to be very careful about that because if we ever think God promises something that he doesn't and then it doesn't actually happen, then God looks like a liar. So we have to be careful to claim promises from the Lord. But at the same time, I hope that we all prayerfully seek his leading, right? I hope that we all are prayerfully trying to discern his his will for us, the way that he wants us to live our lives, the things that he wants us to do. He does guide us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we do this, it's it's not always clear why he does things the way he does things. God, why are you doing it like this? Two years? Really? We might say things like, God, I know that you desire that none should perish. But why won't you open my daughter's eyes to the gospel? It's not the way we would do it. God, I know that children are a gift from the Lord. Why won't you open my womb, my wife's womb? God, I I know that you want me to be able to provide for my family. Why won't you open a door to get a good job so I can do that and I can actually be home at night? 
God, I know you, you hate sickness and death. In fact, you came and gave your life to destroy things like sickness and death. Why am I still sick? Why won't you heal me when I beg for you to? God, I know that you want me to find joy in you. So why won't the darkness lift? And you might not choose or expect things to go the way that God chooses them to go. That is a hard reality of living life in this world. You might not choose things to go or expect things to go the way that God plans them to go. Because after all, the plans that we make are typically plans we like. Uh, since none of us like pain, and none of us would choose to wait for something that we can have now, our plans typically are virtually painless and highly efficient. <laughs> That if God would just tell us and ask us our opinion, we would typically choose the easy, quick route. However, God plans over and over, it seems, in his sovereignty, to take the longer and the more painful route over the shorter and the easier one. To go back to what we thought about a moment ago, though we make our plans, it's his will that will happen. The heart of man plans his way, Proverbs 16, but the Lord establishes his steps. So, what do we do? When that's our reality, and let's just face it, it's all of our realities in one way or another right now in a broken world. What do we do? When our plans don't go according to what we planned. When God's plans don't seem to align with ours, what do we do? When we feel the disappointment of unmet expectations, when our education path or our career path doesn't pan out, when a relationship doesn't come together, or when it doesn't hold together? What do we do when a financial plan that we have doesn't quite turn out the way that we had hoped? What do we do? I have an answer uh, that is not an ironclad answer. It's not a complete answer. It's not going to be a perfectly satisfactory answer. It wouldn't be to me. But I do think it is a humble, modest first step towards an answer. Helping us hold on to certain things that we know about God when it seems like our plans aren't going the way that we want them to go. Because I want to be really clear about the answer I'm about to give you. It's not meant to get rid of the disappointment when things don't go according to plan. Rather, it's meant to help you find hope in the disappointment of when things don't go according to plan. Um, I just um, read a book um, this past week by Andrew Peterson. It's his new book, Out of the Garden. It's one of the books that the women are going to be encouraging uh, this, this evening. And in it, uh, Andrew Peterson, he's struggling with a burden. Uh, and so he goes on this prayer retreat uh, in this, this, uh, this retreat center off in the woods, and he talks about going to this retreat center, and he says this. He says that he entered the woods with a burden, and then he left the woods with a burden and a friend. We want Jesus to come and take it away. That's not always how he does it. Rather, sometimes Jesus meets us in our disappointment to give us what we need to stand up and to bear the burden of that disappointment. Again, not the way we would choose it. But the answer that I have for us, it's, it's not meant to remove the burden of the disappointment, but to help us handle the burden of the disappointment with our friend, Jesus Christ. 
The relief that Jesus offers us is not from the removal of the burden always, sometimes he does, but from Jesus meeting us in us, in it with us, and helping us lift it. So the question again, what do we do when our plans don't go according to plan? When God's plans don't align with ours? Here's my answer. Step one, grieve it. Grieve it with the Lord, not on your own. Bring it to him, set it at the foot of the cross, and tell him, God, this wasn't the way I planned it. We have to remember that our God is a God who can work all things together for good, not just the good things that happen in this world, but also the broken and evil things that happen in this world. He is a God who can take those broken things and use them for his plan. So if our broken plan is the result of living in a broken world, grieve it. After all, if it is the result of sin, we can know with confidence that the Jesus we serve hates the brokenness of this world even more than we do. So bring it to him. Grieve it. Bring it to him because he's the one who came to fix what is broken in this world. And he's the one who will one day come again to finish fixing what is broken in this world. So step one, grieve it. But then number two, Fix your eyes then, not on the plan itself, but on the planner. The one whose plan, in other words, actually will come to pass. Grieve it and then fix your eyes not on the plan, but on the planner. Look to the Lord. Consider him, in other words, and consider his nature, who he is. And guys, this is an act of faith. (laughs) This is an act of faith. It doesn't look like fixing our eyes on what we know, but rather fix, or what we don't know, but rather fixing our eyes on what we do know. You might know God's plan, or you might think you do, but you might not know how things are going to go. You won't, you won't know why he's doing the things the way that he is, but you do know who he is. You know his nature. You know his character. You know the planner by faith. You know that he's good. You know that he's holy, holy, holy. You know that he's righteous and just. You know that he's faithful and merciful. You know that he's gracious and loving, and you know that he can never do anything that does not fit within that character. That the good one will always be good. The holy one will always act in holiness. The righteous one will always be righteous and just. The faithful one will always act faithfully. The merciful one will always be merciful. The gracious one will always be gracious, and the loving one will always be loving. He cannot do it any other way. And we could spend the next four hours or more going through Scripture, sampling passage after passage after passage that tells us that this is the kind of God that He is. Then we could stop for lunch and we could, or dinner, and then we could go for another four hours sharing story after story after story of how the good God was good, and the righteous God was righteous, and the just God was just, and the faithful God was faithful, and the merciful God was merciful. He can be nothing other than those things because that's who He is. And there's three more things that we know about God. Three more things I want to focus on when it comes to us trusting his plan. The first one is this. We say that he is uh, omniscient. Omniscient. Meaning, he has perfect knowledge. He knows all things. He alone has the full picture. Number two, he is, this one we don't know as well, omnisapient. 
perfect in wisdom. He doesn't only know all things, he also knows what's best in every circumstance. And finally, he's omnipotent, perfect in power. He doesn't only know all things, he doesn't only know what's best, he's able to do what's best. That's the God we serve. And with that in mind, I just have to ask you, how could we possibly want the levers of the universe in anyone else's hands? How could we possibly find hope that the, that the levers of the universe would be left in our hands when there's a God like that who's reigning over everything? God says to us from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Gosh, how could it be any other way? But that takes a healthy dose of humility. And that's hard to accept. It's something that we can only latch onto, only grab onto, only find hope in by faith in who he is. So what do you do when things don't go according to plan? What do you do when your plans don't align with the plans of God? Number one, you bring your grief before the Lord. You lay him at the foot of the cross. You speak honestly with him saying, God, I would not choose it this way. And then in faith, you rest in him. <laughs> rest in his, well, rest not in the perfect plan, but in the perfect planner. You surrender to him, saying with Paul, as he says in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. What do you do when your plans don't go according to plan? Number one, bring your grief to the Lord. And then number two, you rest not in the plan, but in the planner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that's easy to say and hard to do. Unbelievably hard to do sometimes, God. It's easy to say that we're just gonna we're just gonna lay it at the foot of the cross and then we're gonna look to, look to you and it's all gonna be good, but that's not the way it goes always. Responding like this to the disappointments of the plans that we make in this life when they do not come to pass is something that we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have put inside of us. So, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have sent into us, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have sent into us, help us in our disappointments, when our plans don't go to plan, turn in faith to you. To grieve them honestly, to speak to you about them, but then to turn in faith, trusting that no matter what the plan is, we know the planner is good. We know the planner is righteous, is holy, is just, is merciful, is gracious, is faithful, is perfect in knowledge, perfect in wisdom, perfect in power. And help us find rest in you in that way. So Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for being that kind of God. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.